Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. How are you doing? I'm all right, Alex. How are you? Well, I'm all right. When I say here with me, I only wish that that were the case, or rather I wish I was there with you because I'm peripatetic at the moment. Mm. And I speak to you, dear listeners, from a hotel room in Manchester where I'm sitting in the darkness to try and ameliorate my sound conditions. It sounds as though you think that sound works better in the dark, but that's not what you mean. That's not what I meant. I'm trying to make a studio by, you know, reducing hard surfaces like windows, you see. But also Mm. I'm completely in the dark because if I have anything electric on, there's a kind of buzz. And we were chatting about this beforehand and Lucy reveals that she spends a lot of her time in hotel rooms saying can anybody hear the buzz and I'm very similar we're very very sensitive people Lucy we're very sensitive that makes me sound as though I spend a lot of time in hotel rooms I don't but when I am in a hotel room I do I think annoy everyone by saying can anyone hear that and everyone says no please stop saying that I'll tell you what I want to talk about Alex if you Mm. don't mind Mm. go with me if you will out of your very dark hotel room in Manchester to your garden and tell me how it's doing well we are entering that season aren't we where there's not much doing but we can dream and think and plan and plot and you know I always focus on what new bed am I going to do next year and I've decided there's a sort of unpromising area of garden at the top of a slope in a lot of shade and I'm thinking it might become Boginia world oh elephant's ears Mm, what do you think but also I've got a cotoneaster that I put in a stupid place. I mean, I put it in a really stupid place and it is basically sprawled all over a pathway. So I've cut it back in order that we may have access to the pathway to walk upon it. 
Mm. And I now have about, I'd say, a dozen cuttings in pots. So I'm thinking I could do Cotoneaster and Burginia world. I have no notion of what that might look like. But we can dream. Exactly. That's half the fun. I know the name of Cotoneaster and I'm sure I've... I just know the name really well because it just looks so funny when it's written down. Well, I know, because you said, I'm sure I spent years saying Cotton Easter, which I think is perfectly nice. Which is probably fine as well. But I, I can't think what it looks like. What does it look like? It's a sort of lateral, low-growing kind of shrub with small pointed leaves and little berries. Oh. It's actually not that beautiful. You wouldn't say it's beautiful, <laughs> but it's, it's perfectly nice. I put it in a bed which then later became, actually I'm very fond of, a sort of cottage garden herbaceous border. So mm. it's entirely, shouldn't be there. It just looks odd. And I allow things to sort of crowd it out so that we might not notice it anymore. I mean, I should just take it out, but I'm always frightened of taking things out and transplanting them because I don't think I'm probably very good at it. But I'm now going to attempt a sort of cotoneaster extravaganza in another Part. that's just worth trying so you can say it this does absolutely make me sound like i'm at sissinghurst or something and i've got kind of whole areas of the garden i do live in the kind of middle of of nowhere in rural Ireland, and i do actually have more space than i ever did when i lived in london so to be fair i do have a bit of room i'll just say it's not sissinghurst in my mind it is sissinghurst frankly and i think you should say land not space should i say land and ground yeah yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll do that. It's really a garden, to be honest with you. But tell me about yours. What is happening, Lucy? Well, there's not much happening right now because, as you say, it's that time of the year. But one thing I'm very, very proud of, and I can't take much credit for at all, is that the quince tree has gone bananas. Not bananas. It's not full of bananas. It's full of quinces. So full of quinces that we don't know what to do with them. Imagine being in that oh. happy situation. What are you trying to do with them? I mean, what are some of the things you've thus far done with them? Well, you can make them into compot or compost, as I call it. Uh, you can put them in a pie. What you should do is make quince jelly. Though mm. That's a bit of a faff, but I probably will try it. If you just have them on a plate in the room, first of all, it just looks completely beautiful as though you live in some sort of Cezanne painting and they smell nice. So you just, just have them there. So we've got them, I mean, we've got them all along the shelves. It's weird. It's like Quince World. Done it this year. I think it's timing and the sun, actually. And I did remember to water it, so so I'm going to take a little bit of credit there. I think when we finally do a meetup, I would like some quince jelly, perhaps with a an elaborate cheese board. Okay, <laughs> okay, no pressure. Because I'll see the what way I can it sounds do. at the minute, you know, we have managed to go. It's like I live in Sissinghurst, and you're in a kind of <laughs> garden of exotic fruits making quince jelly when in fact I'm hunched over a laptop balanced on pillows in a Manchester hotel room and I've got the world's smallest London garden (laughs) so you know to have some quinces in it this dear listeners is what we can do with words we can paint pictures and transport one another to extraordinary other worlds and we're going to attempt to do that today on the podcast where we will discover how reindeers and coconuts fit into the history of measuring and what went on at the courts of pie powder and Lauren Elkin joins us to talk about literature's latest laureate Annie Elnoy. But first if I were to ask you if you knew what le grand K, the great K was it would be understandable if you had no idea. I hadn't until I read a piece in the TLS this week about measurement. 
And it turns out measurement is all about being human. And its effects can range from the whimsical, how far can a reindeer walk without urinating? We will tell you in the next half hour. To horrible, as in eugenics. The book under review is Beyond Measure by James Vincent. And the reviewer who is here to talk to us today is Richard Dunn, who has one of the best job titles I've ever heard. He's Keeper of Technologies and Engineering at the Science Museum, London. Richard, many thanks for joining us. To be here. How do you even get that kind of job title? <laughs> oh, we will absolutely get to the heart of the matter. I know, we're just so fascinated that you've been right, Keeper of Technologies. quite brilliant. I was just given it. <laughs> Someone oh. else came up with it and I applied for the job. <laughs> Well, we're already in awe because technology and engineering, I have to say, is not our forte. But let's turn to measurement and the whole question of it. Can you tell us what Le Grand Cas is and why it was so significant? Yes, of course. Le Grand Cas, or I guess the big K in English, but more, more properly, the international prototype of the kilogram. Essentially, it is a metal block, 90% platinum and 10% iridium. And it answered the question, how much is a kilogram? What is a kilogram? So if it was the international standard for the kilogram, if you wanted to know if something else weighed a kilogram, you would compare it to the Grand Cas. Then each country would have its own equivalent kilogram, which periodically would be compared with the Grand Cas. So it defined for the whole world the weight, the mass of the kilogram. Now, the problem was, by the late 20th century, it was known to be losing weight a little bit at a time. So tiny bits of it were evaporating. And so in 2019, it was retired and the kilogram was redefined in terms of physical constants, including the speed of light. This was a really symbolic, significant moment because it, this was the last uh, metric unit to actually be defined by something physical where you could hold it touch it, although sensibly they wouldn't let you touch it. So it, it was kind of an important kind of passing away of an old way of defining standards for the world. So now the way you measure a kilogram is by using other measurements, as it were. Yeah, it's, it's sort of defined in terms of other things, as say, like the speed of light and Planck's constant. So it's a kind of a set of equations define it rather than an embodied thing. I suppose the first thing that comes to mind is that people needed to know what a kilogram was because they were trading with one another. I mean, that's why you particularly need to know. Well, I suppose you'd be making a cake or something. You need to know a measurement, don't you? <laughs> but we do have very early evidence of measurement, don't we? And you say to be human is to measure. No, it absolutely is. It's kind of, in a sense, how we interact with the world is through measurement, whether it's, you know, how many paces it does it take to get from where I live to the pub down the road, say? Not that I know how many paces it takes me, but <laughs> an indication of kind of how you might move through your day, how you move through the world. Uh, and we certainly have evidence of, of ways of counting up the world from tens of thousands of years ago in, in tally sticks that may have been used to measure cycles like the lunar cycle. And yes, you're right, it's important, particularly once you get into bigger societies to be able to measure the world to do things like account for resources if you've got a large population you need to feed and you're somewhere like Egypt where you're dependent upon the annual flooding of the Nile for the harvests that year 
one thing they did was set up these large measures, nilometers, which measure the flood that year. And that allowed them to predict what the harvest would be like. So they'd know if there was going to be plenty and they could store it for a future year, or if actually it was going to be a very lean year. And how lean it was going to be would tell them kind of how they had to make their stored goods last through what could be a difficult period for the population. There are other ways of kind of thinking about the world that people would measure. So the Babylonians, for instance, did huge numbers of observations of the, the movements of the celestial bodies, trying to think about the intentions of the gods. And if they could read the heavens from the movements of those bodies, they'd know if the gods were perhaps suggesting misfortune might fall and they could act to avoid that misfortune. So there's all sorts of ways in which being in the world and measuring the world can allow you to kind of successfully navigate your future. I mean, I mentioned the reindeer. I think actually perhaps we should get the reindeer out of the way because I did promise <laughs> <laughs> that, you, that you would tell us how long a reindeer can walk. This is a, one of those a wonderful, what might call experiential units, because although we're used to things like you know, the metre, the kilogram, as kind of absolute units, there are others which are more about kind of how you experience the world. So the distance a reindeer can walk, called something like Porongkusima, before it urinates. Apparently, that's around about six miles. I've seen estimates of kind of no more than about seven and a half kilometres. So anyway, it's in, the, in that kind of five to six mile territory, according to the Sami people of Northern Europe. So it's just a way of thinking about how long a journey might be. If it's, you know, six of these things, it's 30 to 40 miles, perhaps. And so it gives you an indication of how long it might take. There's another one I like is the number of coconuts that would be drunk on a voyage in the Nicobar Islands. <laughs> so again, just thinking about kind of experience of moving through the world to give you an idea of something you might be about to undertake, what that would involve. In, in the same way as we, you know, we might say, oh, it's a 10-minute walk down the road. Now, that's not equal to everyone, but it's, it's a good enough measure that it gives you an idea of what you're talking about. It obviously also does bring to mind, as you say, it gives you an idea because, I mean, I know little about the plumbing arrangements of reindeers, <laughs> but I would imagine there is some sort of variation, as indeed there'd be a variation of how much, you know, coconut you'd need to drink yep. according to how thirsty you are or the heat of the day or whatever. So there was a sort of, you know, kind of slight fuzzy margin of error, I suppose. I think that's right. I think how accurate and precise you need to be very much depends on on what you're doing. You know, if you're thinking about a voyage, you just need to know, say, have I got enough provisions to last me, you know, to keep me sustained through the voyage? Roughly how long might it take before I get there, before I have to worry about, you know, hitting a rock or something? So that's good enough for what you want to do. But there are other times where you need to be incredibly precise about your measurements, you know, so where you would go for, you know, a much more consistent and agreed standard of measurement. I was going to talk about science because there, of course, and I hadn't thought about it until you put it like this, but of course, a very, very exact measurement is crucial to science. You wouldn't be able to do it without it, would you? No, absolutely not. And I was thinking about this recently, and it's, of course, it's about communication and consensus these agreed standards that you need for science. Because, you know, if people are talking to each other in, in different countries and someone says, I've just done this experiment, in order for someone else to repeat that experiment and to go, 
oh yeah, hey, you're right about that. They need to kind of agree a set of standards uh, and measurement standards are obviously one of those things. Uh, so certainly for communication and consensus, you need in a sense another form of consensus as to what your measures are, or at least you need to understand that if one person is using one set, they need to know what the relationship is to another set of measures. Mm. And you say that the adoption of the metric system is central to Vincent's book. This yeah. is one of the things that's always really fascinated me about the, the French Revolution. The fact that they tried to reorder everything, including the time of the day. So they divided everything up into units of 10, didn't they? They did the day and the night into 10 hours each and the calendar into 10 months. It just it blows my mind, the ambition of saying, OK, we're fed up of the old order. Let's totally redo everything. And they didn't succeed with time. Nobody wanted to do that, did they? But they succeeded with an awful lot of it, didn't they? They did, albeit in a, a piecemeal way. And I think I think you're absolutely right. It's about part of the initial drive was doing away with the old order. A lot of the grievances behind the revolution had been about the very unfair ways in which aristocrats had been administrating local systems of weights and measures. And the, you know, the savant of the New Republic really sought to move away from human bias in the way things were measured and create what they considered objective standards that derive from the natural world and not from people just making stuff up or from you know the arbitrary thing of the size of the king's foot or something like that mm. and so the meter was defined as one ten millionth of the distance between the north pole and the equator along the meridian that's north south line through paris had to go through Paris, of course. Well, of course, you know, it's not unreasonable. It has to go through somewhere. We can talk about meridians another time. So it's like, so if you base it on the real world, then you have an objective standard that everyone can agree to. And you don't get this obvious unfairness that, you know, had been at the heart of French society as they saw it. And yes, they applied it to everything. But then in the 19th century, a lot of those fell apart, the calendar first of all in the early 19th century, but then other units like the Toise, unit of length and the Livre for mass reappeared in France. The metre, and particularly in scientific circles, did spread through the world. But as I say, in a rather piecemeal manner, I mean, you know, obviously in this country, we, we've adopted the metric system for lots of things, but not for everything. You know, I'm still happy to go and drink a pint in the pub. I mean, I happen to know it's 568 millilitres, but that's just because I have a strange obsession with numbers and, and remember milk bottles with 568 millilitres written on the side. But not everyone's going to remember that. But of course, things like those units and ways to measure things do become really contested, as we know. And you know, they do become a sort of political battleground often. We probably have to go back in time a bit now. I can't possibly not find out more about what the courts of pie powder were. <laughs> it just sounds utterly It does brilliant. sound wonderful. It's a wonderful name, isn't it? And this is really, in a sense, kind of part of the origins of kind of English legal system. And these were tribunals active by the 11th century in this country. And they were about settling local market disputes. As I said earlier, your measures are important because you need to know if someone sells you a kilogram or something, or a bushel or something, that actually they're giving you a bushel and not eight-tenths of a bushel. And, you know, you can obviously imagine fraud being widespread when there aren't agreed standards. So, yeah, these courts of pie powder would be about making judgments where there were disagreements about the quantities that people were selling or said they were selling. I don't know exactly where the word pie powder comes from, and I wish I could answer that. That's, again, 
a conversation for another day. It needs further investigation. I suppose something like that, where you're quantifying something, but you're not always qualifying it. So that, I suppose, would lead into somebody saying, well, I have to sell a bushel because otherwise I'll get found out. And that's maybe how you get to adulterating things and sort of making weights up with, you know, things that aren't pure wheat or, you know, adulterated pints and things like that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And so then you get other systems of measurement and assay to determine that people are selling not only the right quantity, but the right, as you say, the right quality, the right ingredients. Is it pure silver or is it actually a bit lead and a bit silver? And so, you know, things like the assay office are entirely about that form of measurement in addition to simply weight. Mm, I didn't realise that a lot of the French Revolution was about that they felt basically think that the aristos were kind of putting their thumb on the weight and charging yeah <laughs> charging more or less than they should have done. charging more or paying less for you know produce that they gathered on their farms than were selling on so yes it was amongst the grievances of the many ways in which the aristocracy were treating the most of the population unfairly were weights and measures yeah yeah so you can see there how the politics is actually already deeply ingrained in it and you say that the book is very clear on the idea that measuring things often benefited the people who were doing the measuring in terms of land and even in terms of the human body. Yeah, that's certainly true. I mean, if we think of the great surveys of America or the triangulation of India in the 19th century, these are about things like colonial control, you know, mapping and controlling resources of an empire. Uh, In America, it's about mapping and taking over land that actually belongs to indigenous communities and you know this is where the the great resettlement which you know still has its legacy today began in America so absolutely this was about you know power elites dominating whole territories and doing with them effectively what they wanted yes when it comes to the body we have enormous moves from the late 19th century to measure human bodies in different ways as ways of understanding them better. But that kind of leads on to eugenicist thinking in the work of Francis Galton and others, you know, thinking that the measurements you make start becoming, in a way, a judgment of quality. You know, what is a good human? What is Mm. an inferior human? Do they become normative as well? Like, this is the norm, and if you're not that, then you are somehow deviant. Yes, it's about norms and deviancy. It's also about, you know, the idea that you might improve the human stock by um, favouring certain types of people and kind of getting rid of or sterilising those who are deemed inferior. And there, they're, you know, you're, you're leading towards mass sterilisation programmes, eugenics programmes of, of Nazi Germany in the Second World War. It's amazing, isn't it, how it also just became so much more widespread than evidently exceptional, aberrant, heinous programmes like that. But even in just absolutely ordinary society, it was only really a few years ago, for example, that women were regularly referred to by the measurement of breast, middle, hip. And that was just something that we wouldn't say it now. She's a sort of, you know, 32, 28, whatever, but it was widespread. No, that's true. And it's a form of objectification, isn't it? You're just defined as a series of measurements. The whole history of measurement is all about what you do with it, why you're doing it, uh, such crucial questions. 
and thinking about what are the consequences of what you're doing because it, it can be you know all systems of i suppose information and control can be used and abused heavily so i've got a question for you it's a misquote and an impossible <laughs> question to answer sorry who yes. measures the measurers yes but it's an important question isn't it and this is you know this is about accountability it's about representation as I said, thinking through what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I think, I mean, it's been interesting, you know, in science and other academic subjects, the the growth of ethical guidelines are are absolutely around this. You know, you can't do any research in university now without rightly going through a whole ethics procedure, Mm. which is about getting informed consent from subjects about what you're doing well, about the methodology you're applying, but also what you're doing with those results and how you're holding and using any data that you gather. So that's the first thing, you know, you need kind of processes of monitoring, you know, ethical guidelines, ethical panels, and also procedures for raising concerns, effectively complaints procedures, where abuses are seen to be happening or where unintended consequences come up. They need to be kind of fora for exploring that and learning from that. And I think that's the other thing, it's learning from mistakes. As a historian, I'd say this is where good history comes in, you know, looking back at the way in which measurement has been misused in the past, uh, so that we can actually think about the kinds of principles you put in place for doing scientific work in the future. And can it actually be, to sort of extrapolate from that, useful in a kind of progressive way. I suppose it's something that's on everybody's mind now. How do you measure how much money somebody needs, how much food somebody needs, mm. how much warmth somebody needs? Now, we, we're not going to say that governments will always use Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Use that in a progressive way. But they could, couldn't they? I mean, it's important to know how people are yeah. affected by what is happening around them, on, in a detailed way, I mean. No, it is. And I mean, almost all government relies on, as you say, kind of collecting and assessing data. 
And, you know, depending on your viewpoint, it's about what you do with that data. So, yes, <laughs> yes, it's, it's necessary. But, yeah, you know, ultimately it comes down to, you know, what is enough warmth for a person. And so I suppose a lot of these, yes, you can make kind of general things about a population. It's when you come down to the individual that it breaks down, doesn't it? Yes, the limits of the technology. Yes, exactly. And, that, and it's appreciation of that difference between the individual and, and the mass the large population that we have to appreciate yeah and that's where you kind of need I guess more nuanced structures that's about as far as I'm willing to go politically <laughs> oh no quite right too I'm about to take all the nuance out of our structure because we're running out of time so we will okay. need to ask you back again to answer all the impossible questions we threw at you. actually so many things that we decided were for another day yeah <laughs> we may have to have you on for a whole series that was so fascinating Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Richard. My pleasure. Still to come on the show, we're joined by Lauren Elkin for an insight into the life and work of the newest Nobel laureate in literature, Annie Ernaud. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. Every year, speculation builds around the Nobel Prize in Literature, which was last year awarded to the novelist Abdul Razak Gurner. Well, the wait is over with the announcement that the latest laureate is French writer Annie Arnaud, the author of works such as Simple Passion, Happening and The Years, pieces of scrupulously observed writing that are, in a sense, deceptively straightforward. Here to discuss Arnaud's fascinating contribution to literature is the writer Lauren Elkin. Welcome, Lauren. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's it's a pleasure. And you have written a wonderful piece, dare I say, is bringing us fully up to speed. Those okay. who may not be as steeped in Erna's writing as you evidently are in this week's paper. I mean, it's so interesting. Let's just talk a bit about some of the things that you've said I mean, and start with the opening to your piece, which is when you read what I called Simple Passion, Passion Sampler in a sitting many, many years ago now. What was it that entranced you about her writing? I think I was really struck. I mean, to be completely shallow at first, it was such a short book. I mean, it's like 70 pages in the French edition. And I was like, how can this book be so short? I mean, I'd never seen a book so brief. But then once I'd gotten into it, I was like, 
Also, it's about this woman's obsession with this man and how much she likes to have sex with him and how she longs for him when he's not there. And she spends her days ignoring her work and going shopping for clothes and jewelry. And all she wants to do is talk to people who know him. And that level of obsession, I think, was something I was, you know, intimately familiar with in my early 20s, which is when I first encountered this book. But I'd never thought that it could be a subject for, you know, a serious book. So between the brevity and the subject, I really felt like it was more of a pop song than, you know, a work of literature, but I was absolutely just captivated. And, and by the time I finished it, as I think anyone who's read it will know, it's absolutely a very serious and very rigorous and thoughtful work of literature. Well, it's that idea of the subject matter combined with the style that comes through in the way that you describe your reaction to her work and the way that she's developed her work, what she thinks about it and what she wanted to do. It's this idea of the trashy, I think, is how she has translated it. Talk to us about the trashy. Trashiness. That was something I just found last week. I was reading when I heard the news about her novel and Russell Williams, my editor at the TLS, who handles all the French stuff, asked me to write about Annie. I thought, well, maybe now's a good time to look at her writing journals, which I'd bought a few months ago, but hadn't opened yet. And they're journals that she kept, not her personal private journals, but journals that she kept while she was working on various projects over the course of you know 20 years or something. And so I was reading very early on as she was talking about trying to find her way towards a kind of writing that felt ethical and kind of worthy of its subject uh, when she was writing her book about her father's death, A Man's Place. And she says somewhere in those early journals that storytelling is trashy. The word in French is tarte, and I had to go look that up. I was like, how is how is storytelling tarte? I was thinking of, you know, the English word tart, but apparently it means, you know, kind of trashy and disreputable. And I, I love this idea because I, I kind of share it that, you know, there's something about storytelling that leads us down certain paths narratively or certain forms and conventions. And I find that all the work that I'm most interested in as a writer and as a reader and in terms of the work I want to do myself is really fighting against the ways that stories often lead us to sort of think pre-thought thoughts or write pre-written texts. And so I see Ernaud in, in Simple Passion, for instance, really actively working against the kind of pat or conventional ways that you could have told the story and perennially kind of reflecting on what she's writing and how she's writing it. And that's something that really marks her work. She's sort of built in this meta-analysis of what she's doing and what writing should be. I find it really fascinating that and you mentioned in your piece that she felt sort of, she didn't come from a kind of middle-class literary background from a place of privilege, but she absolutely felt, okay, I'm, I'm going to express what I'm feeling, what I'm doing. And as you say, she found that she was fighting against the conventional ways of doing it. There's a confidence there, isn't there, from coming from, because I think... I might be wrong about this, but maybe particularly in France, if you're not from a big city and the middle class and da 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 da, it'd be quite difficult to think, okay, I'm gonna everyone's gonna listen to exactly how I'm thinking and feeling. Yeah, I think that there's something true about that. I think the fact that she comes from a working class background and really had to study her way into the professoriate and the literary middle class means that she has just this inbuilt skepticism of what those forms entail, those conventional forms, or you know, what she might be expected to do as a writer. But she also has, because she's a writer who's very interested in voice and whose work is very voice-driven, she also has in the back of her mind the fact that she wants to write in a way that the people who she grew up around could read her. So she's very much writing to be read by her parents and the people who 
you know, would frequent her parents' grocery store or their cafe. And so she's not, she's writing in just this very direct, very clean form. And when the Nobel Committee praised her for that form, for that kind of, you know, clinical acuity, I think is, is the term that they used. I don't know that they were taking enough into account the importance that her working class background plays in that stylistic decision. Do you think she might have helped people like Edouard Louis, who was also, do you think that might be a similar kind of situation that might encourage him to go, oh, actually, I can hear my voice as well? A hundred percent. I think that Edouard would, you know, admit this himself. I know that he's talked about it in interviews and things that, you know, Agnierno, like without Agnierno, there is no Edouard Louis. He has also talked about the influence of Pierre Bourdieu, the very important sociologist of class and taste on his work. And he's, I know he's edited, you know, volumes on, on Bourdieu's work, but Agnierno kind of pioneered the kind of really clean, direct, and to-the-point voice-driven work that Edouard Louis does so well. Tell us a little bit about exactly how that sort of class divide in French literature also relates to gender and sexuality, because I'm I'm guessing it does quite a lot. I'm guessing this is a, a fairly sort of male arena traditionally. Yeah, I mean, I'm even just racking my brain as you're speaking, trying to think of like a male working class writer in French literature. I'm sure it exists. I'm thinking back to like François Villon and like the medieval ages. In very contemporary writing, there's a few. There's a guy who used to be like a, a toll booth collector, Philippe. I can't remember his last name. So it exists. It can happen, but not very often. And so for Ernaud, I think it's really interesting to think about the ways in which she's not, you know, hiding the fact that she comes from this background and she calls herself a class defector and she attends to the intersections of class and gender in her book in a way that is just you know not available in in literature before that maybe Violette Leduc is a good kind of foremother for her but very different stylistically but yeah I mean for instance her book about her abortion happening which is L'Evénement in French, is which was just made into a really great film by Audrey Diwan, which can probably be screened online. In that book, she's very, very careful to write about the difference between the place where this young woman is studying for her competitive teaching exams and the place back home. You know, she makes this kind of journey on foot on this very long road back and forth between where she comes from and where she's studying. And in that studying world, she falls pregnant and has no way of finding out from anyone. You know, she has no like feminist network to turn to, to figure out what to do. This young woman is so isolated. And the way that Erno attends to her experience of isolation and lack of a network and total inability to talk about all of this with her very conservative family, I think maybe that points to a bit of what you're asking. Interested, of course, too, in the style and something that you write about in your piece, this idea of flat writing is the sort of translation, the way that she writes about sex and estrangement and death and passion and all sorts of everyday events that lead into the huge events of life. And her idea of objectivity, just describe a little bit about what flat writing means in relation to Erno. Yeah, so the term flat writing is my translation. I think in A Man's Place, which is translated by Tanya Leslie, she describes it, she says, writing that will be neutral. But the French that Ernaud uses is écriture plate. So I, I call it flat writing coming out of A Man's Place, which was published in 1983 in France. She's really interested not in like explaining what things feel like or 
you know, psychologizing her experiences, the memories and experiences that she's recalling in her texts. She says she just wants to describe them and list the signs of the things that have happened. So, so in Simple Passion, she's listing, she says, the signs of a passion rather than, you know, writing it out in a kind of conventionally novelistic way. In Passion Simple, she says she wants to write in the style of a testimony, sort of a manifesto or a statement or maybe a critical commentary. So I think stylistically that écriture plat, that flat writing comes through in the kind of marked departure that we see from more conventional ways of writing, you know, a grief memoir, for instance, or a memoir of great passion. She did start with novels, didn't she? I mean, there, she has written novels. And then what was there this sort of turning away from that? Again, this feeling of the trashiness of storytelling or perhaps the sort of, at some level, the kind of dishonesty of storytelling. Yeah, I mean, I think those books are, are really great and they're worth reading because she has such a sophisticated way of phrasing herself when she is not striving for this écriture plat. So, you know, in her kind of academic writings or in those, those early novels, she is capable of writing with great, you know, richness and in a very kind of detailed observational way. But yeah, I did get to interview her for the White Review a few years ago and I asked her about this. And she said, you know, I just found that I could do the novel and I was very influenced by Virginia Woolf and I was, you know, sort of trying to write like a novel like Virginia Woolf might write, but I found that I needed another word for what I wanted to do. And to this day, she doesn't allow her publishers to put a genre to the titles of her book. So in France, you know, anything like what Edouard Louis publishes, for instance, everything gets called a novel. If you want to be taken seriously as a writer, you have to write novels. And even if it's kind of memoir, what we would call memoir in, in the Anglo world, it gets published there as a novel. It'll say roman on the cover. But she says, no, do not call it a roman. Don't call it, you know, a memoir. Don't call it autofiction. Don't give it a name. It's just, this is the title and this is the book. That's really interesting and a very strong thing to do because I was going to ask you whether whether you thought she was part of or even one of the progenitors of the recent wave of autofiction but I guess she would say no I'm not. She yeah she refuses the term autofiction. I think in some of the the essays that I've written on her I've tossed around the idea of whether we can consider her to be writing autofiction and I I do kind of like it as a way of thinking about the kind of space for play that autofiction encourages the fact that the eye isn't necessarily directly pinned downable as the writer, you know, the person who the, the consciousness is producing the book isn't necessarily the same narrative eye that is producing the narrative. But I don't know, having just come through writing this article for you guys and all of the reading that I was doing for that piece, I'm pretty much with Annie on it at this point. I think she's really striving for a scrupulous honesty. And, you know, we might theorize about literary persona and whether you know there's some kind of distance between the eye that writes and the actual you know historical person who produces the text but I think for Anyang no she really is she is that eye but I would add that the eye is not a pronoun that she will continue with throughout her writing she makes a real kind of change with the years to writing in the third person I mean it's fascinating is it because obviously Autofiction, which is, you know, a very sort of unstable label in many ways. It can refer to an awful lot of things, but it does foreground its own artificiality. Yeah. And in a sense, it kind of argues against the idea of neutrality. And it's very interesting to think about somebody aiming for that neutrality. But is mm -hmm. there a sense that in her writing, there's a sort of acceptance that it's 
not really possible at all mm. points, at all times. There is still an I who is doing the observing and an I that is doing the writing. Yeah, I think she completely acknowledges that she's a very subjective witness and, you know, she's trying to account in as objective a way as possible about what has happened to her subjectively. What is her side of the story, for instance, in Passion Simple in Simple Passion? She says that, you know, her account of it is only one half of the story, that like the story would not be complete and therefore one can surmise objective without knowing what the guy, you know, would have to say about it. A funny thing happened a few years back where, so I had done that interview with Annie for the White Review, and I had mentioned that a couple of her books were not yet available in translation, I said in my introduction. And one of the books, which has since been translated, was Mémoire de Fille. And I was trying to gesture it, like, you know, very quickly, offhandedly, how we might translate in English. And so I said, maybe you could call a story of the artist as a young woman. And Jacques at Fitzcarraldo, who is Annie's editor over here, was like, oh, that's great. I'm going to take that to her. And maybe that's how we're going to translate the title of this book, which we're publishing next year. And he took it to her and she said, nope. I don't want any references to anything. I want the title to be as plain as possible. So they ended up calling it a girl's story. And I think that speaks mm. volumes about, mm. you know, like her books are called A Man's Place, A Woman's Story, Getting Lost, A Girl's Story. She just doesn't want the reader to have too many sort of references in mind. She wants you to meet the text as like nakedly as possible. I guess the years that we sort of mentioned in passing is... One of her best-known works in English translation, isn't it? Just tell us a little bit about that book. The Years is absolutely, you know, I think inarguably her masterpiece. And that's a book that for her, as she told me in that interview, was a real turning point because she had been writing in this first-person voice, but she began having more and more trouble with it. And it felt, as you say, too subjective and too far away from what she was trying to I don't know, describe in that sort of new phase of her writing life. So The Years is written in this, from a very close sort of third person perspective from a she that we are meant to understand is a stand-in for the author herself. But that she, who is Annie Arnaud, is also somehow speaking in a kind of choral sense in the first person plural for everyone who's lived through what she's lived through. So it's an accounting basically again, on a very kind of ethnographic surface level of all of the things that she could remember that happened in France between the year of her birth in 1940 until 2006, which I guess is when she started, you know, putting this manuscript together. I think she was working on the manuscript for many years before that, but 2006 is when maybe she said, okay, we're going to end things here. So it's like song titles and things that were in, you know, scandals in the newspapers and, you know, sports matches that were played that were really famous, things like that, that are culture with a lowercase c, not, you know, the massive events of history, but, you know, the little things that you might observe that give kind of texture to the everyday. And, you know, one thing that I haven't spoken about, but which is really important in thinking about Anya No, is that she emerges at the same time as, or, you know, slightly later than, but is very influenced by this kind of mid-century French interest in writing the everyday. Um, you see that in writers like Georges Perec, who is one of my great idols and also a major influence on Annie Arnaud, Michel de Certeau, who wrote The Practice of Everyday Life, or Henri Lefebvre, Roland Barthes, people who are really trying to capture 
the lift experience, the texture of lift experience. And, you know, all of that work had a very kind of ethnographic bent to it. Like Georges Berec used to work, what is it called when you stand outside like a big box store and interview people about their washing machines, um, doing like market research, like, yes. you know, out in the street. Um, and that kind of engagement with everyday people and like their washing machines, I think is something that influenced Annie quite a lot. And, you know, you see that play out in the years in particular. So that's about as far from the kind of ivory tower as you could be, isn't it? If you're out <laughs> on the street saying, how, how do you find your washing machine? But that's real people. He was talking to real people. And that's yeah, what she exactly. Yeah. Talking about the streets and writing about them and influence. I mean, Lauren, I loved your book, Flanders. Oh, thank you. And I know that you have another book coming up next year. And I wonder, Art Monsters, I wonder if you'd just tell us a little bit about that. Since we've been talking about Annie Anno for so long, I'd like to know just a tiny bit about what that's about. Sure, yeah, I'm really excited that it's finally coming out because I've been working on it since 2017. And it was the book that I was living with during the pandemic when I was very much struggling you know, between taking care of my very small child and meeting my book deadlines. But yeah, Art Monsters really picks up where Flanners left off in terms of my interest in women in public spaces and the degree to which it is difficult to claim space for yourself um, when you have been raised female or you know, self-gendered female, how difficult it can be to feel that you deserve to be seen and listened to and to you know, take up space in the culture, so to speak. So it's a book that looks at what I'm calling an aesthetics of monstrosity in the work of feminist artists, largely in America, largely in the 1970s, although it kind of looks back, you know, to as early as Virginia Woolf or Julia Margaret Cameron, and then forward to people like Kara Walker and Betty Saar and Shatipa Biswas. So that aesthetics of monstrosity I'm identifying as a kind of investment in excess and in ways in which beauty can itself be too much or, you know, make us kind of either be repelled from it at first or, or intrigued or want to know more about the way it's made or the way it's put together. I'm sorry if that's a bit abstract. I'm still working out, you know, my sort of public way of talking about it. No, it book. sounds com completely fascinating. And I have to say, right up my boulevard. Oh, cool. <laughs> it is absolutely in my avenue. Excellent. I can't wait to read it. And I will also dive into, I mean, I've read, uh, no, but obviously not as much as you have and not sort of really exhaustively, but I have got the impression from just looking around that people are delighted by this laureateship. They are, they are, I know. I'm so, so excited. I really didn't believe that it would happen. And it seems like, yeah, a lot of other people were totally shocked, but totally delighted as well. Lauren, thank you so much for talking to us about Annie Anno. It was just really interesting and we look forward to Art Monsters. Thank you so much. have time for this week our thanks go to Richard Dunn and Lauren Elkin and thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardee from Lucy Dallas and from me goodbye 